0: Um, How about I pray and we'll ask God to to bless our time together now. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you work in and through our time together here now as Christians sharpen each other, as we love each other, as we speak your words to each other, and as we listen carefully to hear your grace come through. Father, we pray now as we think through the ethics of family, of being the family of God, We ask, Lord, that you would change our hearts, that where there's challenge to be made of our current life and habits, that you would make it, that where there is guilt about things we feel bad about in our current life, that is actually unnecessary, that you would take that guilt away, that we would take our sins to you, knowing that your cross is the only thing that will take away the wrong things that we have done. And so, Father, we pray that this, this, our time together now would be a collective act where together we worship you as we listen to your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're here as a friend of the family and you're wondering what Christians think a good life looks like, well, you're kind of going to get a little miniature taste of that tonight. Uh, we're going to think a little bit about the ethics of family, singleness, and community. In a way, this is coming off of the back of um, coming off of the back of uh, Colossians, where we had a little section in the household sort of code. Um, now, depending on how you're going this afternoon, this year, or even how you're going this lifetime, you might have some kind of different responses to the descriptions of family and singleness that I'm going to, to, to lay down for you. So you might hear me say something like, families have got the blessing of stability. And then think about your family and laugh for the next five minutes, right? Or, or you, might, you might, might sort of hear me say that singles have got such great sort of time and opportunity for enjoyable relationships and you might cry for the next five minutes. Uh, But we're gonna make some generalizations to start with. They may not work for you, is the point of that sentence. Uh, To to contrast the differences between what singleness and what family uh, has to offer. Now, Dr. Carol Morgan of the Huffington Post says that the three greatest benefits of being single are one, freedom. You can go out when you want, do what you want. If you wanna work late, you can do that without the hubby or the kids missing you. Second one, control. You wanna be neat and tidy? You can. With no sloppy spouse making messes all around the house. If you want to be messy, you can. Without a neat and tidy spouse always getting on you and getting up about cleaning up after yourself. And then the third one no annoyance. No one there at the table just jigging their leg and making the table bounce, you know? That sort of thing. Now, Life Hacks Benefits of Singleness article adds to this that you can sleep without someone snoring at 20 decibels, one foot from your ear. And I'm guessing from the picture that kissing your cat is also in the list of benefits. I'm not sure why that's quite the image they chose. But there's, there's some cons to singleness. There's some cons to singleness as well, right? See, single people hear people say these things to them Things like, oh, I have a friend who was 35 when she got married. Still, See, there's still hope for you too. Or things like, if you just stop worrying about it, it'll happen. Now, even if that was a nice thing to say, and it's not, it's not, you're in any doubt, uh, the assumption there is that singleness is a problem to be solved, isn't it? In that sentence. Comments like these assume that marriage is the goal and not being married is failure. Uh, We live in a culture that elevates romantic relationships to this mark of success and fulfillment and completion. And Christians are bought into this into a big way. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever been to the Hey Christian Girl blog. Um, It uh, posts beautifully, you know, wonderful pictures of famous, um, famous men saying things like, look, you're nearly 22. By now, most of our Christian friends are three years into marriage. And I'm trusting in God's timing. But hey, let's get a move on. You know, we've got Ryan Gosling saying that too. I mean, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, like this, 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 this blog is, exists because that's actually things that people hear said. Because there's this culture in certain parts of Christianity where, where Christians are bought into the idea that romantic and sexual relationships are necessary for fulfilment. Sometimes even more than the rest of the culture around us has. And look, it's understandable. It's the, it's the air that we breathe. And yet the Bible sees chaste singleness as something that's good. Not a problem to be solved. Um, in fact, in Corinthians, we're encouraged there may even be more pros than cons to singleness. You can see Paul here saying that he wishes everyone was single like him. I wish that all of you are single as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift. Another has that. Now, why? Why does he say that he wishes everyone was single like him? Well, it comes down down to verse 32. He says there, An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. Now, there's a cultural thing there. It's not just that men is the only concern that Paul's got. But culturally, if you're a woman, you were either a part of your household and about to be married off by someone, by your father to someone else, or you already were. Um, So the guy is probably the only one. He probably wasn't getting too much of a choice either. In fact, in getting married either too. He was getting um, raffled off as well. But you see here, the flexibility of time allows for a more single-minded devotion to Jesus and his kingdom. A chaste single has greater capacity to build a, a rich network, of deep relationships, share the gospel. They've, they've just got that more time. And this is important in our sexualized modern world because single people who aren't having sex are a reminder that intimate relationships do not have to be sexual to be complete or deep or good. Relationship doesn't have to be romantic in order to be deep and intimate and life-giving. Not at all. In fact, there's a there's a Christian doctor. Um, she's uh, a sexologist is the, the, the sort of the technical term for her area of study. Her name's uh, Dr. Patricia Virakun, uh, and she says no one ever died from not having sex. There are no negative mental or physical health effects to remaining celibate. There you go, medical doctor telling you right now if you were if you were actually wondering the answer to that question. The, and she's a, a devout Christian lady. There is nothing wrong with getting married, Paul says in verse 36 to 38, but remaining single and chaste is in no way an inferior option. You're no less in God's image. And there's no, Bible, there's no verse in the Bible that says that getting married will solve all of your problems or any of your problems. Um, I think there's a, I, I've think heard a lot of young Christian people think that marriage is going to solve some of the things that are problems in their life. Have if if you heard that or maybe you feel that? It won't. I'm telling you now. Ask any Christian married person. What it will do is actually reveal to you more of your problems that you didn't know that you had, and the ones that you do have, you'll actually find out if there's a problem there, it actually gets exacerbated, and you see it hurt another human being, not just you, in marriage. And yeah, sure, over time that might be a catalyst for you to sort some of your problems out, but marriage doesn't solve it in and of itself at all. Singleness is an excellent option, says Paul. Now, if you do get married, who here has heard Christians say the Christians should only marry other Christians? Anyway, yep, you guys heard that? Okay, now, where, who here knows which Bible verse it's from? I've got one half hand, a couple of half hands and a shaky one of these ones. Nice. Okay, that's because the Bible doesn't say that directly. okay. Well, I'll not say that directly. Um, come to, I don't have it on the slides, I'm really sorry, but 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Oh, I didn't even bring up a Bible. Goodness, I'm a terrible pastor. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 39 to 40. Who can throw me a Bible quickly? Well, don't throw, don't throw it too quickly. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Raph, I knew what you were going to do. Thank you, Jacob, so much. <laughs> a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is, i.e. single. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. You see, the, the, um, the only time that... Thanks, brother. The only time that we actually get a command about it is because, well, <laughs> the only people who got to choose who they married were Widows. Right? Like the young men are normally dying off in combat or whatever other silly things young men get up to back in those days that we don't have hospitals to fix us up from, so we die at a much, much bigger rate. Uh, and, uh, and so this, this, this category of people, widows, are the, are the few who are pretty likely to actually get to choose their spouse. And so in the ancient world, to the one category who get to choose their spouse, Paul says, Hey, yeah, feel free in the Lord. Feel free in the Lord. Now, look, marriage isn't easy. It isn't even all good. Um, I want you to have a look, think with me. Matthew, again, I've, sorry, um, might need to steal your Bible again later, Jacob. We'll get you to read it. Why don't you read it for us? Come with me to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, if, you've got, if you're got a Bible flipper, go there, Matthew 19. I'll get Jacob to do it for us. And could you stand up for us, brother, and read out for us verses 8 to 10? Oh, I've got to print it out here. Nah, all good. See, I'm fine. Great pastor. Great pastor. All right, here we go. Matthew 19, verses 8 to 10. Jesus replied, this is Jesus chatting to his disciples. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives only because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Okay, pretty basic, right? If you marry someone, you've got to mean what you say. No divorcing your spouse anytime you feel like it. Um I, I, I thought that I'd found the, the, the only breakup song that I've ever liked the other day. And then I went and I researched the full lyrics. And I was like, ah, it's not so good. Um, I don't know if you've heard the song um, Driver's License. And the main lyrics in that song are, um, uh, you said forever, but now I drive alone past your street. And that just got me deep in my heart. Because I'm like, no, you said words, mate. You said words. You said forever. Now, I thought this was kind of like, you know, deep committed, you know, marriage thing. Later on, it was just like, no, just some... I went and looked at the lyrics. No, it was just some song that he wrote pre- the previous week that had something about, oh, loving you forever in it, and they'd only been going out for like a week. And so, so it's okay. So it's not so bad. And so it really it is just pop rubbish. But I thought for a moment I'd found a really cool breakup song that really spoke to my heart. But you see, this is the thing. If you marry someone, you've got to mean what you say. You're committed to this. You've said words. Don't you leave that person alone. Now... If you think that that's a countercultural thing to say today, that our culture sort of thinks, "Wow, that's such a hard thing to deal with—that you need to it, to let do you part far out." Listen to what the disciples say when Jesus says that to them. The disciples said to Jesus in verse ten, "If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. If I've got to mean what I say and stick with this person, just let that sink in. Peter is married." Right? At this point. Because he's got the mother-in-law who Jesus heals. And we just worked this out earlier in the afternoon. I was just double-checking. Yeah, no, he was. Wait till his wife reads this. (laughs) Right? Being married is not easy. Peter doesn't think that it is. If I have to actually be with this person for the rest of my life, is it really worth it? They're asking the question. I hope you get the point. Marriage isn't the be all, it's not the end all. It's one state of being among many. In fact, actually I don't know if you know this, where that's where we're all headed. Every single one of you here is destined for singleness long term. One of the great stories about Jesus in the Bible is when some religious leaders were trying to show him up as a fool, they say to him, If there's life after death, what about someone who's had more than one marriage? You know, this woman gets married to seven different men. Which which one's she married to in heaven? What if a woman's had those seven husbands? Which one will it be? Jesus' response is, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. See, Jesus taught that in heaven everyone's single, because human marriage was always designed to be a pointer to the great wedding in heaven where Jesus is united with his bride, the church, so there'll be no need for it anymore. I don't know if you've thought this through, but Christian marriage isn't forever in that sense. Now, of course, the depth of your relationship with that person, the beauty, the commitment, the way that it was a testimony to Jesus' faithfulness to the church, oh, that stuff, will, that, that, that'll, that'll still be there. Of course. But marriage's final purpose is to, be the, is to point to the marriage of Jesus to his church. And so singles in church now you guys give us a taste of what heaven will be like for everyone. Don't know if you've thought of that before. Put all this together, and you have the incredible value that God places on singles in the church, the deep networks of relationships they're able to form, poking us families out of our comfort, getting invited to stuff like, oh, do I really have time for that? we got this stuff. Oh, yeah, I guess we really should. And showing us something of how we'll relate to each other in heaven. Now, Families. Families is a blessing. Um, The Livestrong website, livestrong.com, says, "'Families are a source of emotional support, "'love, security and protection. "'Healthy families provide a unique sense of belonging "'and value that cannot be found in other relationships. "'The benefits of healthy families are far-reaching "'and all-encompassing.'" Now, there, there are, of course, some benefits for those families blessed with children that weren't discussed in these articles. It gets a little bit crazy. Uh, and it's true, your average two-parent family provides a significant amount of stability, connection, teamwork. You know, compared, com- I was just a single dad for a week when Mel went away. Ooh, okay, um, You guys are incredibly amazing single parents. Single parents of the world, I take my hat off to you. Um, so there's blessings to be in a family. And, and if you're in a family um, and you're not sure how much of these three things your family provides, stability, connection and teamwork, well, just being together as a community that loves each other, this is a blessing, more than perhaps you might appreciate. Human aloneness is the first thing that's not good in creation in Genesis 2. And being a member of a family provides an inherent mini-network of relationships. Do appreciate it. Don't don't, don't sort of neglect it and... What's the word? Take it for granted. Now, Christian marriages are also to be places of intimate connection and Faithfulness between husband and wife, illustrating that deep connection and faithfulness of Jesus towards his church. And this is the function that sex serves in marriage. See, sex serves the relationship. The relationship does not exist to serve the sexual desires of the partners. You've got to get that order right. Sex, enab- sex exists to enable the lifelong love and faithfulness and intimacy and continued working hard to being vulnerable, naked with each other emotionally, that marriage actually requires to have a close relationship. Otherwise, you just end up being housemates and quite separate. Now, in his um, 1993 book, uh, Families at the Crossroads, there's a guy named Rodney Clapp, and he challenged our ideal of the traditional nuclear family as being what the Bible writers meant by family, okay? He suggests that the evangelical preoccupation with the nuclear family is a product of the Industrial Revolution and capitalism and the 1950s. Um, This is Rodney's take. Now, in biblical times, your closest circle of family might include your parents-in-law, your daughter, her dropkick boyfriend... Your, your son and his wife and kids weird uncle jebediah your dead brother's widow and the two egyptian servants that you took in to give them a job after they were taken in as prisoners of war that would be maybe your family and you see that in all you see that in all the letters with a section on households why is it that when we're thinking of the household we got slaves and masters as well as fathers and sons and husbands and wives See, biblically, family is a broader, more varied set of relationships, or the household, as the Bible writers often use that word, than for us in the individualistic West. We think of the family as, a, as our home, our refuge away from the world, uh, away from other people who aren't like us, whereas the ancient household was much more open with a greater capacity to invite people into itself, a more, bit more porous. Now, I mention this because our nuclear family structures actually can exclude many folk who would previously have been included in some sort of caring family structure. There's more, there's more... As we more sort of are... There's less ability to get into and out of a family, there's lots more gaps for people to fall into, I guess I'm saying. So our mum-dad 2.3 kids model, it's a bit lower than that now, 1.7 or something, uh, excludes from from the kinds of connection and support some people that previously households would have sort of, people could have latched onto. And that's just our culture, that's just how it is. I'm not sort of preaching that what happened to be the case then is all of a sudden what we must recreate now. But what it does mean is here that we need to do ethics that are uniquely Christian ethics we want to have christian ethics that are shaped by the resurrection. We want to we want to be, live lives in such a way that that don't make sense if Jesus didn't rise from the dead and he's not actually the king now. Now if it's true that everyone who puts their trust in Jesus will be raised to life, then that will make us do things that would be strange if there was no life after death. Makes sense? If it's if if we're going to if if we want to um I'll leave it go. How about we go to Acts 2? If you still have Acts 2 open in front of you and flip it to verse 44, you'll see there that this is where Peter preaches the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and it produces a very particular result among the community. All who believed were together and held everything in common, and they began to sell their property and possessions, not just property, possessions, and distributing the proceeds to everyone as everyone had need. Every day, they continued to gather together by common consent. They weren't forced to, they wanted to, in the temple courts. They all had people that they didn't know in each other's homes with no qualification other than they believed that Jesus rose from the dead. They sold their possessions in order to provide for those in need for no other reason than that the other person trusts in Jesus. They dedicated themselves to deep fellowship with people that they did not know before, simply because of having Christ in common, as if that fact alone made them family. Now, this probably won't come as much of a surprise to you if you're familiar with Jesus' teaching. I mean, when Jesus was in a packed house and someone told him, hey, your mum and your brothers are outside, they've come to take you home, Jesus' response is, where are my mother and my brothers? looks around at everyone inside the house and says, these are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Was he using a figure of speech? Like, was that a metaphor for teaching? Or did he really mean that? Because you've got to remember, his mum was outside the door when he said that. That's, That's insulting if he didn't mean that. Or take the start of any of Paul's letters. He doesn't primarily address the churches as friends, partners, or even, or even cousins. He calls them his brothers and his sisters. The primary identity for God's people is now defined by union with the resurrected Christ. And so our primary identity is Christian. Our primary family is church. I think we often think of our primary family as our nuclear biological family. And the church is kind of like a nice set of cousins for the kids to play with. You know, I feel like that, like, I, I, that's kind of what I grew up with. That, that's what it feels like to me. And, and the church is a good help and replacement family for, for those families who are perhaps a bit broken, or the people who are a bit, you know, lonely. And for those sort of people for whom they don't have their own family, well, the church fills in the gap. Do you see how that's kind of a little upside down from what the Bible's talking about? It'd be weird if it wasn't like that for us because that's the way our world works. We take care of our own, protect them from the outside world. That's the air that we breathe. And we don't like our families to be vulnerable to the foibles of other people. I mean, who knows Who knows what they're like and and they might be a bad influence and... We don't don't, don't like to have that lack of control over the influences in our family. We'd have to be weird or superhuman or changed by some divine miracle for this not to be how we live and act. But we have been. See, we've been changed by Jesus. We have been raised with Christ in Colossians 3. We're a new person. The resurrection has changed everything for us. Primary family for Christians is your Christian family. People at church, your brothers and your sisters, not your cousins. The gospel has social implications that, that simply change things for the first followers of Jesus, and it should change us too. We shouldn't look like the people around us. Our families and homes shouldn't be the same as that. They shouldn't make sense to people who, well, don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. Now, look, I'm not saying this dissolves the nuclear family. Of course it doesn't. The New Testament says that if a Christian neglects their household, then they've denied the faith. Um, I'm not saying that this means that you don't treat people who aren't church family well. <laughs> of course not. Um, any, any more than, you know, you exclude people who aren't your nuclear family. You know, that would be a silly thing to do as well. But, but, but having a more open family culture will actually make it easier to have Christian and non-Christian friends naturally become friends ourselves you see if, if our families are a bit more open porous to having people who aren't biologically related to us as a part of them then things like the 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 reach event that we had today where we're just you know getting together and picking some apples and people knocking around with each other those things will be more natural and a part of our lives just what we do because our, fa- our homes are a bit more open a little more porous so how do we do this well i think sorry i went to the creative slide a bit early we need to be creative <laughs> See, we're meant to be creative with our ethics. We're made in God's image, and it's our responsibility to, to, to rule ourselves and to rule our households. And because Jesus has poured his Holy Spirits into our hearts, uh, each Christian is being remade in the image of our Creator. Um, and, and so uh, by the Spirit, the Spirit, the Christian who's been raised with Christ, will well, we get to make new decisions for new scenarios. We're not in first-century Palestine where that was their norm of their families, so we've got to get creative work out how we're going to live in this new way uh, and think of new ways to do it in this world. Um, it's, kind of, it's the kind of thing that, when Paul, that Paul prays for when he prays that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds um, so that we might know God's good and perfect and pleasing will. So, so we can get creative with the stuff. We've got sort of license for that from, um, from the Bible, which is good because we're all in very different situations. Like, I, I mean, I made some generalisations at the start that families have more connection to offer, within them and singles have got more time. But, but everyone's situation is different. Um, and that's not gonna fit everyone. You know, we've got different personalities, abilities, disabilities, all of which are part of the mix to the glory of God. So what are some things we can do? Well I've just got a couple of thoughts. The first one is I think we want to build the family up. So the first thing we do, look around and who is on the fringes of church? Like who do you, who do you look at and you think, oh, I wonder if I wonder if they experience being a part of this family as much as I do. I wonder if they feel as connected as I do. They look like they don't feel so connected. So my question is, with that person you think of a church, do you know their name? Do you know their job? Do you know their life situation? And do you pray for them? It's easy to think, oh, I should really do something. But just those four questions are kind of good. Do you know their name? Do you know their job? Do you know their life situation? And are you praying for them? If you can work, to, work out, to find out the first three, then you can do the last one. And normally, getting to know them by talking to them is a good way to find out the first three, and then it makes it easy to pray for them too. Now, it's only by doing these things that the body grows up into Christ. This kind of thing actually isn't optional for Christians. Um, J.I. Packer says this. He says, we should not think of fellowship with other Christians as a spiritual luxury... An option in addition to the exercises of private devotion. We should recognize rather that such fellowship is a spiritual necessity. For God has made us in such a way that our fellowship with him is fed by our fellowship with fellow Christians. And requires to be so fed constantly for its own deepening and enrichment, We need each other, Packer says in much better, more beautiful and more powerful words than what I've got. But also, don't tear the family down. What is our response when we hear that someone has fallen into some temptation or another? Criticism, condemnation, holier-than-thou shaking of the heads... You see, we, we, we just don't have the option to respond to difficulties within the body with slander and self-justification. I don't know if you, you've heard the kind of talk. Did you hear about Billy Joe's marriage troubles? Oh, gee, Why can't he just sort that stuff out? Now, I really hope you don't know someone named Billy Joe who's having marriage troubles. And If you do, I'm really sorry. It was just... But there's a lot of things wrong with that slanderous statement there. That's not how Christians act, because we're family. It, when Ephesians four uses the image of a body to describe our family connectedness, like you, you don't you don't kick your toe. If you if you kick your toe, your nose doesn't sort of look down at the toe saying, "Ah, <laughs> oh, stupid toe." Like you, you, your nose, your whole body just goes, "Ow!" Every part of you is in pain, and that's us. If one of us is in pain, one of us is hurting. You don't. You don't. You don't sort of use it to make yourself feel a little bit better about yourself because you didn't make that same dumb mistake they did, we're in pain with them. We look out for them. We, we say, ouch. We care for them. I've got a friend who's... This seems like a long bow, right? <laughs> a friend whose dad's friend is an ex-bikey. He's, a, he's an ex-comanchero, if you've heard of that bikey gang. And if a member of the Comancheros goes to prison, he doesn't wonder for a second whether his family will be cared for, and whether they'll be okay when he gets out. And in the church that he's in, that's not the case. This guy's become a Christian, and he finds it hard to understand why that's not the case in the church when it was the case in his bikey gang. This is how we need to be. Now... I'm sure that there's going to, as we come up with these creative ideas, there's going to be things that we're going to need to do. Uh, it's going to need singles poking their way into families and families opening their homes to singles. I love the fact that there's so many families here where you've got a couple and then someone who's not a member of their family just sitting next to them. I know heaps of churches where you've got a pew, like rows of pews, and like nuclear family, nuclear family, nuclear family, three singles. <laughs> and that's all that it ever is. And it's like, why? Why? Um, I want you to imagine, what if you were a same-sex attracted Christian in the church who wanted to honour Jesus with your sexuality so bad that you're like, absolutely, I'm happy to live the rest of my life not getting married because I'm, I'm, Jesus, honouring Jesus is the highest priority for me and so I'm just going to, you know, I'll be living singly all my life. That person just needs as much connection as you do. Why don't you invite Why don't you invite them into your family? I know of a, a guy who's same-sex attracted Christian who basically has been adopted by another family. He goes to their, He goes to their place for dinner every Tuesday night. This guy's like a sort of like a, a really um, godly, ministry-minded Christian guy, and this family just invited him in. That's just that. They just that he's he's part of their family now, because in our sort of culture, he doesn't have that, not in the same way. Why wouldn't we be doing those sorts of things? Uh, Growth groups, look, they're a really good, manageable means of opening the door to community with lots of brothers and sisters, Christian brothers and sisters. It's not the only way, but it's got a lot going for it. Um, If you're like, the chat after church is weird because it's like this weird kind of social, awkward situation. I don't feel like I'm so natural in it. Great, don't do that. Go up to the person after church and invite them to coffee through the week when you're going to be relaxed and sitting there having a coffee and having a good time with them. It will require creativity. Creativity to change the way our church family works. So it's our primary family. Also, in fact, singles not only don't not only to the singles don't not only don't disconnect yourselves from married couples, also don't disconnect yourselves from singles of the opposite gender. Like if you're a single guy, don't be like, "Oh, that's a single girl at church. I better not talk to her in case she thinks I'm interested and I'm not really sure if I'm interested, so I don't want to lead her on. Or I'm just going to talk to the guys because then we can just talk about footy and it's easy. We're a family. Look out for each other. Get to know each other. Um, a, good, uh, a wise young man asked a good question on the panel, um, in the panel uh, that we had on yesterday um, and asked Matt, um, Jacinda's husband, is it Hock- Hockman, Hockman. Um, asked, him, asked him, you know, what do, I, what do I do to get myself ready for, for, for being married? Um, and, and Matt gave a great answer and, and the, the, all the panel sort of gave some helpful thoughts. I think his was, um, yeah, well, you're never ready. <laughs> was one part of his wisdom. You know you're ready basically when you're willing to make the promise that I'm going to lay down my life for this person for the rest of my life. That's as that's, that's much as you know as when you're ready. Um, and there's a bunch of other good wisdom, but one thing that I thought was is helpful to that is have deep relationships now while you're single that, have, that you're vulnerable within, where someone's going to call you on stuff and you're not going to like it because that's going to happen when you're married. Have relationships with people who aren't like you because that's going to happen when you're married. He ain't going to be like you. He ain't going to be like you. Be real and deeply engaged with, in friendships with people who are unlike you, who are different to you. Um, different gender, same gender, be in relationships that are vulnerable and learn how to do that, learn how to be connected because that's what you are going to experience in marriage. And, of course, you're going to need those friendships when you're married as well, so, uh, and you're going to need to keep them. Uh, so that's a, a good way to start. Look, you can, we, can, we can even do a little Q&A if anyone's got burning questions after this. I just want to finish now. Um, sorry if we've taken a little longer than maybe I thought I was going to take. But the reason that all of this stuff is Christian ethics, I want to say, is because, because Jesus. God gave the world to his son, Christ. He redeemed out of the world a family, a bride for his son, Jesus. And that bride is his prize. And we work hard at making ourselves, this church, beautiful because we're going to be given to him as a present. We're going to be his bride on the last day. And so we work at making our church and our relationships, our connectedness and everything beautiful for Jesus' glory. That's why we do this. That's why it's Christian ethics. It's about, because it's about Christ. So if you're thinking, why would I care about this stuff? Why would I want to change my whole life? Because Jesus because that's we are a bride to be unified and beautiful, ready for him. I'm going to pray for us now. Heavenly Father, we've thrown around a whole bunch of ideas about singleness, about marriage, about how we interact on those things as a church. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your insight into reality. But Father, we know that we're being prepared for someone else. Our lives are not our own that we together are being prepared for Jesus. So, Lord, we just pray that you just flip our minds and change our minds and our mindset so that it would be all about living for him, not individually, but making ourselves together into a bride that he will be overjoyed to be with. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.